Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. A few times a year here at WNPR, when I pick up my mail, I'll notice something strange and kind of exciting. An envelope with handwritten lettering on the outside addressed to me. When I open these envelopes, I do it carefully and hopefully. What could be so important or so infuriating for someone to take the time to sit down and pen a letter? I get a little charge every time. Now, it didn't used to be like this, of course. Letters were the way we communicated over long distances all the time. The way we courted long-distance loves and how we let our families know that we were thinking of them. Today, of course, it's a text or a Facebook message. Even a nicely crafted email seems like just too much trouble these days. So today, where we live, a love letter to the letter. We'll hear about a trove of war letters and about how one project has people writing love letters to their cities. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I suppose later in the show, I should probably give out our our address in case you actually want to send us a letter. But we'd love to hear from you today at 860-275-7266. If you still write letters, if you love to get letters in the mail, maybe you've recently found some old letters from someone in your family that are telling you something new that you didn't know. Joining me in the studio is Patrick Scahill. He's WNPR science reporter and host of the Beaker blog. And Patrick's been reporting on a really interesting project, and it got an awful lot of attention online, too, Patrick. First of all, welcome back to the show. Hi, John. So tell us about this project that you learned about. Sure. Um, so this uh, project uh, involves about 2,600 letters that were found uh, in a chest uh, in a museum uh, over in The Hague in the Netherlands. And this was uh, a chest that had been kind of dormant for, um, well, for centuries, really, and uh, had been sort of mentioned really obliquely in an article written by, I think it was a theater critic in the 1930s. Um, anyway, a historian over at Yale, uh, Rebecca Arendt, stumbled upon um, that article and said, hey, you know, I, this sounds great. Thousands of letters just hanging out. I got, I got to find this thing. So she goes over to the Netherlands and um, she finds the chest. And we'll talk more about sort of what was in there, um, but I thought it would be fun just to – we have Rebecca actually reading from one of the letters that she found. So I'll just set this up really quickly. Um, most of the letters that were found in this chest were in French, and a lot of them deal with um, theater folks, so musicians, stage actors, things like that. This letter was written by a woman to her husband, and he was actually a, um, a dancing master working in Leiden. And um, the woman was just basically fed up with him. His business was doing really bad. Uh, he kept writing back home. He was uh, to her in France. He was asking her for money all the time. And the letter writer is just kind of like absolutely frustrated with him being a loafer uh, and sort of a no good guy. And she signs off her letter by saying, it is not for you to ask for anything. Enfin, my dear husband, despite all your faults, I am, nevertheless, with respect, your very affectionate wife, Jean Le Cloutier. She actually crosses out the word wife. <laughs> so she says, I am your very affectionate wife no longer. And then closes by saying, I wish you better health than that which you intend for me. I am very well disposed. And, and so, I mean, <laughs> I, I love that letter. Um, and one of the really great things that we'll see as we hear from a few more letters uh, that were in this chest is that, um, you know, history obviously is often told from very selective perspectives. 
um, often from the perspective of elites or, or people in the nobility. Um, this is just everyday stuff. And we'll actually, as we go through here, find that a lot of these letters, I mean, they could be written today with the themes that are in there. And again, the project signed, sealed, and undelivered. Again, yep. so these are letters that are being opened for the first time. And, and I love what you're saying there, too, Patrick, is it's not something we'll be hearing about later, war letters that help us tell a story about some very specific time, and they're not letters between famous people. They're just like the kind of letters that I talked about at the front, right? The kind that we would write to someone in our family and imagine finding that unopened hundreds of years later. Right. So there's actually about there's about 600 letters that are left in the chest that are unopened, and we'll talk a little bit more about what's going to go on with those uh, later on. But you're right. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of letters here that are just reflective of, of everyday life um, that was going on at the time. And, you know, it's everything from people who are kind of ticked off at their bosses to, to unplanned pregnancies um, to just sort of everyday correspondence between working violinists and bassists uh, from all around Europe. Well, I, actually, let's listen to one of our uh, staff members reading another one of these letters. Can, can we listen to that now? I have come to know of the arrival of Monsieur Autin in Paris. I hear that he is seeking to find a position similar to the one he had before in Courland. For myself, I am with a troupe of actors presently in tour, waiting until some better opportunities present themselves. I would have done better to stay with you in Hamburg. I never could have imagined how ill-used I would be by Monsieur Gaillet and how he would trick me. If there might be any opportunities in your area, and if you would let me know about them, you would give me pleasure. He's looking for work, Patrick. He's looking for work, and he's also traveling all over Europe, which is one of the neat things about that. I mean, we see this guy. He's bouncing around everywhere. He's, I mean, this could be a, a jazz player coming out of New Orleans trying to, you know, go around the country to play his music. It's, it's the same thing. It's exactly the same sort of letter. I want to bring into the conversation Jenna D'Ambrosio, who's Thomas F. Peterson Conservatory at MIT Libraries. Uh, she joins us by phone. And Jenna, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. So how did you become involved in this signed, sealed, and undelivered project? I collaborate with uh, cultural historians and literary scholars on the letter-locking practices of everyday people uh, and famous people like John Donne and um, um, Elizabeth Stewart uh, from The Hague. And two scholars, Dr. Nadina Ackerman and Daniel Starza-Smith, learned about the project through Rebecca and our other colleague, uh, David Vanderlinden, and they they contacted me by email and said, what would you do if we told you there was a trunk of letters that have really never been touched, and they're letter locked? Oh, and 600 have never been opened. <laughs> and so I said, uh, yes, uh, let me know more. Give me, <laughs> Let me know what's going on here. So that's how I got involved. The letters all look the same clothes. They fit pretty much in the palm of your hand. They're pretty tiny. So I had cautious optimism and thought, okay, let's get over there and see if there. it's just one pattern of folding a piece of paper to become its own envelope. And let's look and see if there's security issues going on built into the letters physically. Um, and so we went over, and it was very exciting to see that even though they look all the same from the outside, on the inside there's all these complicated paper folding techniques that um, everyday people are doing and also the elite. And all these things are in this trunk, so we're excited to discover it. Now, when you talk about, talk about these paper folding techniques, this letter locking, this is something that obviously it's a practice we don't have today, right? What we do is we, if we write a letter, which we do about three times a year, which we'll probably talk about later on, we put it inside an envelope and usually, you know, lick the, the, the lip and fold it over 
and then we send it off. But these letters are very tightly sort of almost wound together and then sealed with wax. Talk about how long this was actually the practice, Jenna, how how people did this for such a long time. We think the practice with paper, it, it, it the folding of of letters with paper begins pretty much we're we're discovering it's earlier and earlier than the 1400s in western cultures um it begins when um pretty much paper is invented and it can be it's strong enough to fold and and kind of deal with being stabbed and tugged and and things passing through it to add in security uh, so I believe it's connected to a technology that, that predates paper into papyrus and parchment and back into uh, docu- building in information security back to clay bull. So I'm, I'm thinking it's pretty much as a human a human thing that we do is to build uh, security into our communications. And uh, I think it extends even farther. I mean, I think it's happening a lot, uh, 14 to the 1700s. Uh, but we see it with uh, war correspondence um, in the, in the, during World War II with uh, Russian triangles, folder, uh, folded letters, and prisoner of war stationery. And even into Bitcoin paper wallets today, people print out their wallets, they fold up their code, and they put holograph tape on it. Mm. And so it's... We, we see a, a huge surge of it in a certain time period, but we see it extending, and so we're, we study that. In, in case, yeah, in, in case you, you can't quite picture what uh, Jana's talking about, you can go to our, our webpage, wmpr.org slash where we live, and also on our Facebook page. There's a, a video of our staff opening some of, some letters that Jana sent us. Trying to open. Trying to open them. <laughs> uh, a, a few, the easier ones to open are actually, Patrick, the ones that she described, the triangle-folded letters. Yeah. Those are the ones, you know, the little triangles you'd make maybe in, in home room, and you'd yep. flick them across the room at the cute girl <laughs> and hope that she would get it, not the teacher. It never so, worked for me. It, it never worked for Patrick or I, but... Um, so I, I know, Patrick, they use some techniques to try to figure out a little bit of, about what's inside these letters. Well, uh, Jenna, I wonder if you can maybe just talk a, a bit more about that. I mean, I know for you this was really exciting because you kind of had theories for how these letter, uh, letters were, were folded, but you hadn't actually um, seen some of these series in practice, right? I, I, I am scouring archives. Uh, looking, so I've been studying folds and slits, and I, I'm not – Focusing on the words and their meanings, I leave that to my my colleagues who to do that. I've been looking at things people haven't been noticing, like dirty panels, yeah. dirty marks, um, and those things were telling me uh, that there's built-in document security, and um, it wasn't it wasn't until you know I started collaborating that I was learning you know how how this is that the content and the way that we fold stuff are connected. And it's adding a whole new fresh layer of um, it's adding a whole new fresh layer of discovery for people who've been studying their letter collections like the Passons or John Donne or or everyday people, and they haven't thought about that before. So um, that's been really exciting. Yeah. And the, the locked model giveaway has been the really amazing tool of engagement to sort of get that information out there because people have to interact with it, and it's a puzzle they have to solve. As my colleagues say, you know, mm. it's, it's it's a challenge, and so it gets them thinking, and 
it connects them to the past. That it's something that humans do, right? And we, it's not just this past thing that people did in the past and, and it stays there. It's when I ask my family who are my general public, you know, they're like, why are you studying flits? What are you doing with your life? You know, but when I say, here, I open this letter and now my nieces and nephews want to do it and scholars want to learn it to connect to their work, they say, oh my gosh, we can do this today too. It isn't just something that was done and, and ends in the past. We can pick up a piece of paper. So people are letter writing again and they're using these really fun historic techniques that have lots of built-in security too to sort of connect with each other on a one-to-one basis today like we haven't seen before. We're talking with uh, Janet D'Ambrosio, who's the Thomas F. Peterson Conservatory at MIT Libraries, about uh, rare letters that have been found recently reported on by Patrick Scahill, who uh, hosts the Beaker blog here at WNPR. Uh, how are the letters doing? I mean, these are these are old. We're talking like probably 1690 for some of the earliest ones in there, right? I mean, right. Are, are they are they holding up okay? They're, thanks for asking. Right. They're, in, um, they're safely housed in the Museum for Communicatie, and they are in pristine condition. So you, you can see the folds, and you can see what I call the sort of subfolds, like radiating creases or impressions. We have a tiny little dove that was hand-drawn, and when we first discovered it as an enclosure, we thought, oh, my gosh, that couldn't possibly be from the time period. And I said, well, let's look at the paper. And sure enough, this, these little hand-cut flames of the, the flames of the Holy Spirit were sort of impressed gently into the paper fiber fibers into that same um, impression. So basically, it's teaching us: let's make sure we don't humidify and flatten these things. Let's make sure we we really look to the this topographical surface for even more clues we didn't even think to look for before. Mm. I, I want to actually play a little bit more audio. This is uh, another one of the letters read, read aloud because uh, the, the folding techniques are so interesting and the little things that we're finding, but also the content is interesting as well. When she is returned, it will be with a suffering soul. As for her, she had no sooner arrived in Paris that she recognized the fault that she had committed, and she felt a sensible displeasure at having left The Hague. At least you may be able to render her justice. You can divine without difficulty the true cause of her despair. I cannot explain in so little space all I ought to tell you. Content yourself with thinking on it, and on returning her to life by procuring her return. She has a passport when she wants it. Have the goodness to do your best. Your negligence is loudly complained of, and one does not know to what it ought to be attributed. Your response on all these matters is hoped for. You are greeted, and myself, I am Monsieur, your very humble and affectionate servant. Uh, so that right there was an, an unsigned note, which was written by a woman in Paris, and it seems um, from the context there to detail an unplanned pregnancy. Um, and one of the interesting things that uh, Rebecca Aron over at Yale was telling me about this letter was that um, it actually was marked that the addressee, presumably the father of the child, uh, had refused delivery. And that's one of the interesting things about this um, chest of letters is there's actually a really detailed account book that is in the uh, chest uh, as well. Um, and that's because of uh, the postmaster, uh, Simone de Brienne, who um, was sort of overseeing this whole project, had directed some folks under his uh, um, watch to basically keep track of every single letter, uh, wh- whether or not it was delivered. And um, that's for historians and other – I mean, the letters themselves are great, but the logbook is another kind of like really nerdy gold mine for these people. Hey, Jana, and I we, say these people. I mean, yeah. I studied history in grad school, so I'm one of them. <laughs> you're you're um, one, one of these people. Jana, go ahead. Right. So just two points there. There's, it wasn't just a lone man, a lone guy doing it. Um, there was a postmistress. Uh, yes. so his wife, yep. Marie, was also quite involved, and we're going to learn more about that as we 
delve into this project. The other thing that's exciting is when I hear my colleagues read the letters or they get excited about the content, we can't wait to finally get together in the same room and look at the form and, and show how they're connected and kind of see if people are using a particular letter locking format for aesthetics in addition to building insecurity. Mm. I, I just have to ask you, we just have a minute left, Jana. The, the idea that these letters never made it to their intended recipients, there's something in, incredibly sad about that in a way. All these stories have a little bit of a sadness. The unopened letter is something that, I, I don't know, has a little bit more melancholy than <laughs> almost anything else you might be able to find. Can you just talk about that and how, how the, the content of these letters, as you have opened them up with your colleagues, has struck you? Right. I think there's just a, a lot of respect in a, that we are the caregivers and the, the helping to share these messages with the world. And uh, we want to treat them as artifacts because they're a witness from that specific historic moment in time. And we, if we alter them, then they lose their voice. They're our witnesses. So we just want to have tremendous respect with, with the way we share them as artifacts or as their voices, as mm-hmm. words, written words. Well, thank you so much for sharing them with us, Janet Ambrosio, Thomas, and, uh, Thomas F. Peterson, conservator at MIT Libraries. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. When we come back, we're going to talk more about letters with Patrick Scahill here uh, from WNPR. We're going to be talking about war letters. We've gotten some tweets from Brendan. says, lawyers wrote letters all the time, but they're generally mean letters. And Nick tweets, I wrote one the other day. It was awesome. You can write us a letter or maybe a tweet at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today in the program, we're talking about the art of the letter, something that many of us seem to have forgotten about. Patrick Scahill, WNPR science reporter and host of the Beaker blog, has recently been writing a lot about letters because of a rare trove of unopened 17th century letters found by by Yale University. And other colleagues like Janet Ambrosio from MIT have been working with these letters. If you'd like to see some of our staff opening these handmade locked letters, go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Of course, one of the most famous types of letters ever gathered is war letters. And Andrew Carroll is director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. Andrew, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for joining us. Morning. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So how did you get involved in this project in the first place? It's somewhat ironic. I don't come from a military family and actually had no interest in history growing up. My sophomore year of college, our house in Washington, D.C., uh, burned to the ground. And uh, nobody was hurt, which is obviously the most important thing. But everything we had was lost. And for us, the worst part of it uh, was losing all the family letters. And it just kind of inspired this passion for preserving correspondences. And weeks later, a distant cousin of mine heard about the fire, just checked in with us. And he ended up sending me a copy that he had written during World War II, um, April uh, 21st, 1945, writing to his wife after just walking through the Nazi concentration camp at Buchenwald. Mm. And it was this incredibly graphic and just, you, you could feel the, the, the agony that he was going through describing what he had just seen. And I called Jim back. I said, I really appreciate your you know, sharing this with me, and of course I'll return it. He said, you know what, just keep it. I probably would have thrown it out anyway. And I just kept hearing story and story like this. And so eventually I launched the project back in 1998. And thanks to Dear Abby, of all people, who wrote a column about this and it it appeared in newspapers across the country. And literally tens of thousands of war letters from every conflict, from the revolution up to the present day, 
started pouring in, and I found this uh, wonderful archive at Chapman University and donated the entire collection to them. And, and, but we're still building the collection. We're still looking for letters and now emails from Iraq and Afghanistan. But that's really how it all came about. What are some of the most exciting letters, the, the letters that you uh, look at and say, my goodness, this really tells a story of a particular time and place? Just right off the top of my head, I think one of the most extraordinary letters we have. Uh, it begins, Dear Sis, it's 9.05 a.m. Sunday morning. The bombs have been falling for an hour now. Um, and you look at the upper right-hand corner, December 7, 1941, USS New Orleans. It was written by a young sailor inside a ship at Pearl Harbor as the attack was happening. And he describes how he's trapped in the forward engine room of the ship, and he's got nowhere to go. And he finds this pad of paper, and he writes a minute-by-minute account of what it was like to be at Pearl Harbor during the bombing. Now, he wasn't able to send the letter for He survived, fortunately. Uh, and he wasn't able to send the letter for a year because of censorship. But, I mean, this is a, you know, you're, you're in the front row of history experiencing what this young man went through. And because we cover all different generations and different conflicts, we have a very similar letter by a young woman who was at Ground Zero on 9-11. And she was in a building right next to the World Trade Center, and she finally made it to safety after almost being killed when the towers fell. And she wrote this 14-page handwritten letter to her parents also, just like that young sailor, describing moment by moment what it was like to be there. And I, I noticed as I was going, Anna gave us the handwritten original, and I noticed these uh, blur marks. And I called up and I said, you know, was there any kind of water damage? And as soon as I mentioned that, she said, no, those are my tears. Because as she was recalling, and it was very fresh just a few days before, she just started weeping again. And so it's one of the things about letters that makes them so valuable is that, you know, you're, A, you're holding the paper that that person held, and you do have these embellishments or these little uh, things like Jana was talking about as well that, you know, bring to life that this was something written by another human being, and that's what makes it so powerful. Andrew, when you're looking at these letters um, sort of in a more big-picture way when you kind of pan out a little bit, are, are there common themes that you've identified or emotions that are invested in these letters that particularly, you know, resonate with you? That's what's so amazing is how timeless the emotions are, that whether it's a young Continental soldier back in the Revolution talking about almost you know, hand-to-hand combat with redcoats or if it's a Marine writing about going door-to-door in Fallujah you know, in Iraq, the, 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 the language has changed. It's much more informal now, much more conversational. But the emotions don't change. And, in fact, I'd sort of forgotten about this because we focus just on American letters. But in just hearing the story, what Janet's been doing with these incredible letters that have been found, um, there was another trove of letters that was found uh, not too long ago, and they're 2,000 years old. They were written by Roman soldiers who were stationed at what you know, became Great Britain, but back then was under Roman control. And what's so funny is um, when you go through these excerpts, the letters that the Romans were writing home, they're complaining about their officers, they're not getting paid enough, there's not <laughs> enough beer, and it's not really that much different from letters you might read from, you know, conflicts a uh, hundred or even several thousand years later. But I can't imagine that the writing style has changed somewhat. I mean, the letters that you're gathering now from the recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan are written by young men and women who have grown up in a very different style of communication. They probably don't write as many formal letters as perhaps were written during the Revolutionary War. Do you see the style of actual writing change? Exactly, and that's what I meant. Is The style and the tone is more conversational. But I have to say that um, we have thousands of emails from Iraq and Afghanistan that troops and their families have shared with us. The content 
is as profound and as powerful and philosophical as any letters that were written previously. That you know, they may not have the means to send a, a physical letter home. They're sitting there with their computers. But that doesn't mean that what they're writing isn't as significant and in, in some ways really as powerful. And conversely, we have letters dating back to the Revolution, the Civil War, that are very mundane, that are just, you know, dear mom, how's the farm, much love, Bill, that's it. You know, there's, there's not much being said. So it, 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 the, the content and the importance of what's being written is still very is significant. And it's frustrating, actually, because a lot of people say to us, oh, we only have emails, you probably don't want those. But we really do. Anything that these troops are writing, now what's, what's really done, for lack of a better word, damage to the art of letter writing are things like Skype and texting, uh, which a lot of troops do understandably. They want to see their parents. They want to see their children, whoever it may be. Uh, so we get that desire to kind of look at a, at a screen and see the person you love. But what I encourage troops is like every once in a while, just sit down and handwrite a letter home about what you're going through. And just as you go through your grandfather's letters from World War II and really treasure and value those, future generations are going to go through your letters and really get a better sense of what you went through as well. Andrew, I wonder if um, you, know, you can imagine yourself as a historian 50 or 100 years out from now, um, looking back uh, and, and trying to sort of parse out what was going on in America and around the world from communication. What are some of the challenges you think historians are going to face in the future when they're going back calling through all this, uh, all these digital letters that have been left by people? You know, I've never been asked that. It's a very good question. I think it's going to be just the overwhelming sort of onslaught of correspondence that we have. Um, you know, in the, in the past conflicts, soldiers would maybe at best write one or two letters uh, a day or every couple of days, usually like once a week. Now you're getting, you know, 15, 20, 100 emails a day. And so I think for historians to kind of go through that and to really pick out uh, the wheat of the material is going to be a little bit, you know, more difficult for uh, the next generation or generations down the road. But in a way, that's our job is to look through those emails now and to pick out the ones. we have. In fact, speaking of Fallujah, we have a Marine who sent us a letter describing the Battle of Fallujah, which was a huge thing several years ago in Iraq. And it's just an incredible description of what he went through and, and what his fellow Marines endured. And so, you know, we try and kind of flag those to make sure that if someone's working on a book on the story of Iraq or whatever it might be, or conflicts in the early part of the century, that we will have already kind of gone through that and, and picked out what we think are sort of the more descriptive and the more elaborate letters and emails. Andrew Carroll's director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. Andrew, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to Patrick Scahill, who's WNPR science reporter and host of the Beaker blog, where you can read more about letters. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Sean. If you want to write us a letter, it's where we live, 1049 Asylum Street, Hartford, Connecticut, 06105. When we come back, love letters to cities. You can join us at 860-275-7266. Coming up next, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday's show, the new president of the State Board of Regents, Mark Ojekian, was recently on a program to talk about labor negotiations with faculty at the state university uh, system. On the next Where We Live, we'll be joined by several faculty members from the public universities who are pushing back against uh, proposed cuts. That's coming up on Monday's show. Hope you can join us for a conversation about higher education. When was the last time you wrote a letter? Wrote a letter. Hmm. An actual letter, handwritten letter? Actually, not too long ago. I'd say a year ago to my aunt. Maybe when I was 15, uh, 35 years ago. <laughs> uh, probably last year. Uh, this summer to my niece at camp. 
Those are just a few voices gathered on the streets of West Hartford by our interns Dan Schultz and Sarah Flaherty. We've been talking about letters and letter writing, the lost art of letter writing today on the program. Old letters from the 17th century and letters from all manners of wars over the ages. We're getting tweets from Jenny Liu says, Those of us with a loved one in prison still know the excitement and joy bittersweet of handwritten letters. And from Anne-Marie, my dad's weekly letters while overseas were lost. Recently found one he sent to an uncle that had been saved. I treasure it. If you want to tweet us about letters at Where We Live, you can also call us and let us know if you still like to engage in the art of letter writing. 860-275-7266. Maybe you got some old letters hanging around the house. We're going to bring into the conversation Lindsay Ziervogel, who's writer founder of the Le- of the Love Lettering Project, and this is a, a lettering project and has to do specifically with loving your cities. Uh, Lindsay, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So how did this pro- uh, project to come to fruition? I was sitting in a park with a friend of mine, uh, Raya Tamshestis, who is an avid letter writer, and uh, we, were, we had a little writing collective, so we were writing uh, little letters, little poems to inanimate objects was the, was the task of the week, <laughs> and we happened to have these airmail envelopes in our bags, and on our walk home, we just slipped these little bits of writing in the airmail envelopes and left them. That was back in the day where there were payphones around, so we left them in payphones and in a pile of cherries, and it was just it was just an afternoon in the park. It was a lot of fun. And then the next uh, year, I was in grad school, and it was it's pretty gray up here in February in Toronto, and uh, I was feeling a bit down, so I thought, I know what I can do. I'm spending all this time in the library, which is feeling a bit... Uh, gray and dismal as well. So I got people to send me books they loved and books they thought needed love. And I wrote little love letters to these books and slipped them in the stacks. And all of a sudden, the entire library felt like it was full of possibility and, and potential. The, the idea of, and I've just been doing yeah, it every year since. Yeah, well, the idea of writing love letters to people is something that I suppose we can talk about in just a moment. But writing love letters to inanimate objects, and in some ways I, can, I could see that being very freeing. You don't have to worry about what someone might think. You're just able to express yourself fully in a letter like that. Exactly, and I think it really helps to, uh, I mean, so the project is I get now I get people to write love letters to their communities. And I think it really helps people think about what they love about where they live, and it helps. And, and you're right. There's no, there's no one, no street lamp is going to say like, mm, I'm not sure I love you back. Like the street lamp loves you back. <laughs> so I, before we get too much more into some of the, the letters that uh, people are writing to their communities, talk about just mm-hmm. the, the the process of letter writing for you. We we talked in the first segment about letters that were never delivered to the people that they were supposed to get to back in the 17th century, and then we talked about war letters and. Some of these these uh, stories are very very fraught, but they, just the idea of the basic letter, just sitting down and writing to your grandmother, seems to be something that is lost. Do you feel that? Do you feel a loss in in the art of letter writing? I, I feel like it's not necessarily people's go to. It's definitely my go to. I probably spend about a third of my income on postage, but <laughs> I think there's something that's really amazing about writing a letter with you know with handwriting. It's so easy. You know, we see um, we see fonts on our computers all the time, but you don't get a sense of where someone was at. You don't get a sense if someone was rushed or if someone's a bad speller necessarily or or if someone's if someone really takes the time to to you know with their penmanship. I think there's something really special about seeing handwriting and I think it's something that we're really we're unfortunately really losing. A lot of people when they come to my events say, Oh you know my handwriting's terrible. I couldn't possibly write one. But part of me thinks that's the point. The point is that it reflects part of you. If you have bad handwriting, like that's that's okay. That's 
totally fine. But there's, yeah, there's been this whole series of stories I've read recently about how they don't teach uh, cursive writing in, in schools anymore. And so uh, kids don't really know how to actually properly write a letter because they, they don't even know how to form the letters anymore. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, parents, this is your your task. I mean, the thing is, we're in we're near Christmas time, and kids write letters to Santa. That's, you know, a longstanding tradition, and, and uh, that's I think that's a really good thing. I think it's a really good thing to sit down with a pen and paper or a pencil and a paper and just, just give it a go. There's so, something different about, about writing with a piece of paper than, than there is on a screen. We're, we're talking with Lindsay Ziervogel, who's writer and founder of the Love Lettering Project. She's based in Toronto. Uh, if you want to join us, 860-275-7266, if you have thoughts about letter writing. Uh, so tell us about this project and, and the sorts of uh, communities that you're working in and the sorts of letters that people are writing to their towns and cities. Uh, so I've, I, I'm a Torontonian. I've lived here for quite a while, and I've been able to take this project sort of through communities all through Toronto, and it's amazing because I learned so much about the city that I've lived in for so long because People write letters to things that I've never even heard of. Like there's a green roof in a building that I'd walked past I don't know how many times, and I only found that out because of, of one of these love letters that someone wrote. And I've been able to do a, I did a five-city tour of the U.K., which was so much fun and so interesting to hear what people love about their cities that, that I don't know anything about. So I was in Bristol, and this little boy wrote a love letter to the docks in Bristol. And I had no idea there were even docks in Bristol, of course. <laughs> the minute we were done, I had to go find them. Uh, and I, did, I went up to the far north, which is also a really different place than an urban center like Toronto. And I worked with 15-year-olds up there. And again, it was just a really interesting, really different... The letters were really different. You know, instead of the letters being to, you know, parks or... Um, you know, a bookstore, the letters were to uh, fishing in the lakes nearby, which again, like something, you know, that doesn't happen in a city like Toronto. Uh, so it was it was quite amazing. It's, it's really interesting to see how specific and how regional every uh, every event is. It's also interesting, too, and we find this a lot. We, we are located in the city of Hartford, Connecticut, and we often say that Hartford has a little bit of an identity crisis, and Sometimes we have uh, we're a little too hard on ourselves here. Uh, we're stuck between Boston and New York, and though, though the people who are in the city and around the city love it in many ways, when asked, we we're not always able at the tip of our tongues to to find the the right words to say about our city. Something that I like about this is is forcing people to think about their communities and find the thing that they really do love that maybe doesn't jump right to mind. Obviously, if there's a big public park, everyone's going to love that. But there are sometimes mm. little hidden things that people might have to really search for in their communities, and then that helps them to, I, I don't know, think about their towns in a different way. Absolutely. I mean, one of, uh, something that's just recently come up, I'm, I'm home with a baby right now, and I, my letter carrier, my mailman, is like the nicest human being that I have met in my neighborhood. <laughs> and I would write a love letter to how wonderful he is. And again, that's, it's so specific. You know, three streets over, they might not experience that. I think it's really important to think about you know, being really specific about your community. You know, you don't have to speak to the whole city. You can speak to, you know, one streetcar or, you know, one uh, store that sells flowers on the corner. Like, it can be really specific and small. Because I think that those little tiny things are what make up 
that's what makes up our lives. That's what makes up our community. That's what makes up a city. And it's also the way that you would write a really good love letter to a person, right? I mean, anybody can write a letter that says, your eyes are so beautiful, you make me feel so good. Well, everyone thinks that about this person that they love, but it's the specificity, right? It's actually digging down and saying, here's something about you that is different than anybody else. And I think that you'd write the same thing about your favorite street. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. I know that you have a few letters uh, that you wanted to read to us, brief letters uh, to, to various places. Could you read something? Sure. There's one to Whitehorse that, again, a 15-year-old wrote. And again, this 15-year-old was not looking very enthused by my presentation. And all of a sudden, he <laughs> sat down to write this letter. And it was long and beautiful and really thoughtful. So that, that's the other piece that I think that, you know, you can, uh, you can really break down barriers in terms of figuring out what people have, where they live. So this is uh, to Whitehorse. And all the letters are anonymous, so I don't know uh, who wrote it. Dear Whitehorse, I love your warm, dry summers. They're worth the long winters. I love your bright, cool nights. They're worth the short fall days. I love your small population and that I see locals almost anywhere I go. Your stores, landmarks, and good-hearted people. But most of all, I love your climate, fresh air, and silence, for it's what makes you different from other cities and sets you apart. That's very, very Pretty amazing, nice. right? That... For a 15-year-old, that's amazing. <laughs> well, and again, as you say, a 15-year-old who probably doesn't write a whole lot of letters to, to anyone these days, right? True, true. You know, well, I don't know if 15-year-olds are, are so into the writing letters to Santa. And again, like the camp <laughs> writing, camp letter writing is a big thing still, but it's so specific and it's such a short window. And I, I, I would hope that people just would give it a try. It's so much fun. There's also something so amazing about opening up an envelope. You know, it's like it's a gift. It's a little it, – and it takes such physical – presence to open up an envelope and to find out what's inside. It's so much fun. Now, I think you have another letter uh, written to to your city, to Toronto. To Toronto, yes. This is one of my favorites. Uh, It says, Dear Toronto, you're a big old city, but I love that I still have small world encounters on your streets. Something that I think really typifies the city that I live in. And and your your city that you live in, you you obviously love it very much. Do you write love letters to Toronto all the time? All the time, all the time. At every event that I, I host, I always, and, and then sometimes when I'm not even hosting an event and I just think of something I love. There's something about writing a letter, there's something about hiding, cause, so part of the project is you hide the letter that you've written for a stranger to find, and there's something about it that's just so much fun. It's funny, uh, I've been asking people to call us or to tweet us or to send us something, and strangely enough, people aren't calling our program today, but people are sending all sorts of, if not handwritten, at least written tweets, like Matthew, who says, I actually wrote a letter yesterday. I'm a longtime fan of sending handwritten letters and notes. I like the personal touch. And Christine says, I refuse to let, uh, let me see if I can get this, I refuse to let letter writing die. The same goes for cursive and to thank you notes. Oh, there's a big one. Thank you notes. And that's probably another thing that you could write to your city or to an inanimate object. Thank you notes are something that our parents taught us that we're supposed to send out. I got to say, Lindsay, I'm terrible at this. Are you a thank you note person? Oh, my gosh. My mom would have my head if I was not a thank you note person. I, I am all thank you notes all the time. I think there's, it's so amazing. Imagine when you get a thank you note. It feels so special. So, I, I mean, my, my family lives close by, and I still send them mail. So I have to ask you, so what happens with your project next? You, you've spent a lot of time in Canada and in other places, but mm-hmm. is this something mm-hmm. that you think you would spread across the United States? I mean, I, I think we've, we've seen and talked about 
similar campaigns in places like Philadelphia that have been trying to get people to say nice things about their city? And I know that we could use a little bit of that in some of our cities here in Connecticut. Is this something that you think could could spread a little bit more widely? I would love that. I would love to. I'm, I'm hoping to uh, do a few more cities in the States and eventually put together a book, a book of all these love letters so that people can can learn all the little tiny moments in, in various cities. That's that's next on the horizon. It's a bit of a big endeavor, but that's coming up next. If people have to, if people would like to get in touch with you to find out more about this, where's the place for them to go, Lindsay? I have a website. It's loveletteringproject.com. And uh, yeah, I have. There's contact information there. You can read up uh, some more about the project, about other love letters that have been written to different cities. Well, thank you so much. Lindsay Zervogel, writer and founder of the Love Lettering Project, joined us from Toronto today. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Get, want... get writing. <laughs> People will get writing. Let's go quickly to Kat, who's calling from New London. Hi there, Kat. Go ahead. Uh, hi, Kat. Are you there? Enjoying the show. Oh, thank you so much. What's on your mind? Well, I just wanted to comment that my uh, I've been encouraging my daughter to do thank you letters for her birthday party, which was actually in September. <laughs> so I just wanted to say that it's never too late. And she's added at the end of her thank you note, um, please write me back. And she is getting letters back. So oh, I just wanted to say that. Oh, she's actually getting letters back. You, you say it's 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 never too late. So even though the, the party was in September, it's okay to, in, in your mind, to maybe write that slightly tardy letter. That's okay? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, I, I have to ask, too, we, we talked a lot about this. Do you feel as though kids are losing the art of letter writing, that they don't know how to write in cursive? They they just don't know how to sit down and compose something that's not a, an email or a text? Well, I, I she's doing it. She's actually started writing. Uh, she'll write half of the letter in cursive. And so, you know, I hope, I think that people are losing it. I think parents have the responsibility <laughs> to encourage the kids to write a thank you letter, even if it is, you know, months down the road. But, you know, because there's not a lot of time, lots of activities. But I think writing a letter is really important. Uh, Kat, thank you so much. And if again, thank if you would like to learn more about these letter-locked letters that we uh, unopened earlier, you can go to wnpr.org slash where we live. Write us a letter. We'd like to hear from you. It's where we live, 1049 Asylum Street, Hartford, Connecticut, 06105. Our program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. The technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our intern is Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. I'm John Dankosky. This is where we live.